So over the last um, couple of weeks, we've been in this chapter in 2 Peter, and we've been dealing with the overall subject of false teachers in the church, that reality that there are men and women who teach things in the church that are false, that are not true, that are lies. A reality that was confirmed and taught by Jesus himself in the scriptures, a reality that was confirmed and taught by the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, and unfortunately it's a reality that's rung true over the last 2,000 years in the church. And so each week we've been taking a different topic from uh, this chapter. A couple of weeks ago we heard John speak on the method of false teachers, that what they do is they promote themselves rather than promoting Jesus. Last week we heard from John about the character of false teachers, that they really have nothing good in them at all. They don't pursue humility, they don't practice repentance, and all they bring is death. They don't bring life. And this week, we're going to be dealing with the judgment of false teachers. What a lovely subject. John seems to always give me these subjects. But this is what we're going to be dealing with. What is going to be the judgment of these men and women for their heretical ministries. Now, when you consider the judgment of God, this is a doctrine that really brings out a lot of differences in preachers. Some preachers love talking about the judgment of God. They talk about it every single week. They're often accused of being preachers that are hellfire and brimstone preachers. And what these preachers often do is they overemphasize repentance at the expense of grace. But then you have other preachers that are scared of talking about the judgment of God. They almost can't say the word judgment in any of their sermons. And these preachers are often accused of being mamsy-pamsy preachers who often overemphasize a wrong definition of grace at the expense of repentance. And I bring this up because this doctrine is a difficult doctrine. When you look at the scriptures, there are some very heavy things spoken about the judgment of God. And because of that, it's very difficult to get a balance from the scriptures that you can teach in and stand in. But even though that's the case, I still believe God wants us to pursue that balance. And I'm going to try and do that this morning over the next couple of minutes. I'm going to try and give you a summary before we go into our text of the judgment of God. So here goes. Is everyone ready? Got your seatbelts on. I think the reality that God is a God that judges is a real absolute truth of Scripture. I mean, it says... In James chapter 4, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In Isaiah 33, verse 22, it confirms that God is the judge, where it says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver. 
The Lord is our King. He will save us. And why is God the judge? Well, listen, he's the judge because from the beginning, he's the one that's defined what is good and what is evil. He himself is not tempted by evil. He's not drawn to evil. He is perfect. He is holy. He is without sin. But listen, he is the one that has defined what is good and what is evil. And he is the only one, listen, that has the right and the authority to pass a judgment in creation. He's the only one that's able to pass a lasting opinion, which is what judgment means. Now, we also know from the Scriptures that God is a God who wants to relate to his creation, specifically to human beings whom he's made in his image, human beings who've been created with the morality, they're able to tell the difference between good and evil. And because of that, if God is going to be perfect, if he's going to be just, if he's going to be holy and fair, when he relates to human beings, he has to do so on the basis of their morality. So if someone is morally good, God can pass a judgment that he can have a relationship with them. If they're morally bad, he has to pass a judgment that he cannot have a relationship with them because God can have nothing to do with evil. Now, of course, God knew, didn't he, that before man was created, we would fall. We would fall into sin. And that means that every single human being from Adam has been morally wrong because of sin, except Jesus. And because God is a God of love, grace, mercy, he sent Jesus, the perfect God, to become the perfect man who then became the perfect sacrifice so that Jesus would go to the cross to be judged by God the Father in place of mankind. And so when Jesus was on the cross purchasing the potential salvation of every man and woman, he gives the results of that salvation to every single person who puts their faith in him so that God will see that person as innocent and righteous because of what Jesus has done. And so on the day of judgment, in the future, when God will judge every man and woman that's ever lived, he will look at someone who's in Christ and say, you are morally right because of Jesus. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. And therefore, you can be with me in heaven. You know, to me... This is the, one of the most encouraging things about being a believer in Jesus Christ. That Jesus says to me in John 5 that I've passed from judgment onto life. That I will never be judged again in terms of my sin separating me from God for eternity. Because Jesus has been judged for me. For me. But the sobering thing is, is that for those that don't put their faith in Christ, who don't turn from their sin who don't believe that Jesus was that sacrifice, when God judges them on that day of judgment, he will look at them and say, you're not morally right because you're a sinner. And he will pass a judgment that they cannot be with him in heaven. Sobering stuff. That, I feel, is a summary of God's judgment in the Scriptures. It's concise, but 
I think it's a balanced view. Now, even though I said that in John 5, I'm encouraged that I'm never going to be judged with regard to the penalty of my sin again, I know that I am, as a believer in Jesus Christ, going to have to stand before Jesus one day and give an account for what he's called me to do as a believer. And what really shudders me to the core about that is that I know that because I'm up here today teaching from the Scriptures, because I've done it in the past by God's grace, and because hopefully in the future I'll do it, in God's grace, I know that when I stand before Jesus, I am going to have a stricter judgment. Because it says in James 3, verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Why do I get a stricter judgment? Well, it's because what I am doing has the potential to have a profound impact upon people's lives. I can be used of God to encourage people to come to know Jesus. I can be used of God to encourage Christians to grow in their relationship with Jesus. But if, if I'm teaching in error without repentance, I am discouraging people to come to Jesus. I am discouraging believers to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. That is why for me personally, I find preparing a sermon the most wonderful experience, but also the most scariest experience. That's why I spend hours meditating upon what I'm going to say, why I study the Scriptures, hopefully accurately, because I want to share with you the truth, and I know that I will receive a stricter judgment. Now, with that in mind, should it really surprise us that God is going to judge false teachers? Should it really surprise us, as it says in verse 1, that God is going to bring a swift destruction to false teachers? No, it shouldn't surprise us. Because God loves people. God wants people to come to know him. God wants people to grow in their relationship with Jesus. I mean, do we seriously think that God looks down from heaven on false teachers who may have a very successful ministry, who may even speak very well, have large churches, or may they, they may not, do we think he looks down on that with a smile? No way. He looks down on that and he's not happy about that. And he is going to judge that in the future. Think of it this way, all you parents in here. Think about your child being influenced by someone else that is, got, is no relation to you, has nothing to do with you, and they're leading them down a path that's going to destroy their lives. Like a drug dealer. Would you be happy about that? No, I don't think you would. And it's the same with God. God is not happy about people leading people astray, leading people away from Jesus. He's not happy about it, and he will judge it in the future. Now, for many of you in here, while I'm saying this, maybe you're going, yes, I want to hear about the judgment of false teachers. I've had enough of false teachers. I want justice for, for them. Maybe some of you experience that feeling right now. 
Well, in a sense, that feeling itself is not wrong. Because it says in Psalm 58, verses 10 to 11, the righteous, that's us, shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God that judges the earth. It's okay to want false teachers to be judged. Because it's a just thing. But what I feel the Lord wants us to take away from this introduction to our message today is this. That if it wasn't for the grace of God, we could be in the same position that these false teachers are in. I'll say that again. If it wasn't for God's grace we could be in the same place. We in ourselves provide nothing righteous for God. There's nothing in us that merits his favor. And it's only because, it's, it's only because of his grace that we are here today. That hopefully we're not in error. That hopefully we're not false teachers. And I want you to remember that as we go through this text. Yes, it's right for these guys to be judged, but remember, you're only not going to be in this place because of grace. And hopefully that will give you a more well-rounded view of it. Now I want to submit to you that there are two time frames of judgment for false teachers that are spoken about in this text. The first time frame is now, in this life. As they teach false things, there is a judgment that comes to them this side of eternity. And then there's a judgment in the future, which we'll come on to later on. But what I want to focus on first is the judgment that is now in their life as they're teaching these false things, as they're deceiving people, as they're leading people astray. And that is in verses 20 to 22, and I'm going to read those again. Follow with me. It says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it's happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, to understand these three verses, we have to understand what the holy commandment is in verse 21 that these men and women have turned from. And when you survey the Scriptures, generally, but specifically in the New Testament... The holy commandment that is being spoken of there, and it's one commandment, I want you to notice that, it's written in the singular, it's not a group of commandments. That commandment is revealed to us in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, where it says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men to repent. And what Paul was doing in Acts 17 in this place was he was in Athens and he was speaking to the people there, and he was basically teaching, look, Jesus, the Messiah, has come to the earth. God has come as man. 
He's gone to the cross. He's died for the sins of the world. He's resurrected again on the third day. And because of that, mankind can no longer use the excuse of ignorance to say, oh, well, we don't know much about God. We think he's this. We think he's that. No, God has come to the earth. You cannot have that ignorance anymore. And because of that, Paul says, what God calls all men to do now is to repent. What that word means is to have a different mindset, to turn in the opposite direction to something. And that thing is sin. This reality is confirmed by Jesus in the Gospels because what did he say when he went out to preach? He said, repent and believe in the kingdom of God. It's confirmed by Paul elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where he links this command with the law and he says that when gospel preachers speak from the law correctly, it will bring conviction of sin and lead people to repent. Turn from their sins. Turn to Jesus. This is the holy commandment that these men and women have turned from. They've turned from repentance. But notice it says in verse 20 that they had the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says that they've known the way of righteousness. It says that they actually even escaped the pollutions of the world. Well, how on earth do you reconcile that with someone who's turned from repentance? Well, I would suggest to you that what Peter's teaching here is not that someone's lost their salvation, that they've become unborn again, but he's teaching that someone has rejected the drawing work of the Spirit. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus made it very clear that if anyone was going to come to God, God had to draw them. You can't, in a sense, when you don't know God, go to him. He has to draw you. And Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's God that has to draw you to himself. And then later on in John 16, 7 and 8, we find out who that person is that does the drawing. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the, help, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's the Spirit's ministry, listen, to draw people to God. He does that by showing them that that they're sinners and showing them that they need Jesus. And guess what? When he's doing that, you know full well that Jesus is the Lord and Saviour. You also know full well that he is the way to righteousness. And in a sense, you are escaping the pollutions of the world. Because if he wasn't drawing you, you'd be dead in your sins and transgressions. But there's a choice. When the Spirit does this, you either have to accept it or you reject it. If you choose to repent and turn from your sins and believe that Jesus died for them, He will give you new life by the Spirit, and you will become a child of God. Hallelujah. But if you choose not to accept that drawing work of the Spirit, you are doing exactly the same that these false teachers have done. They've been drawn of God, but they are turning 
from the holy commandment of repentance. I believe that this interpretation of these verses is confirmed by verse 22, where he says that these false teachers are a bit like a dog or a pig. And this is very important that Peter uses these two animals because in the first century, a dog was not viewed the way we view dogs, like Usher down here. Dogs were associated with people who were evil. Pigs, obviously, in the Old Testament, were unclean animals. And so if Peter was talking about born-again people who've lost their salvation, he surely would have used different animals. Because when we're saved, we are, what? Washed clean of our sin. The blood of Jesus washes away our sin. No, he's not talking about regenerate people here. He's talking about people who are not regenerate, who've been drawn by the Spirit, but they've rejected the Spirit's work. And like a dog, they've returned to their own vomit. And like a pig, having washed, they've gone back to the mud that they were wallowing in. This is what he's teaching. Now, when this happens to people and I think specifically to false teachers, there is a judgment that occurs. This is why Peter says that it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. This is why it says that the latter end for them will be worse than the beginning. Because listen, this is the judgment. The judgment for false teachers in this life is that they are less likely to get saved. Listen, they're not saved. The false teachers that Peter's speaking about here are not born-again people. They are, they are unregenerate. They're people that have a form of religion, but they've denied the power. They don't have the spirit of the living God in them. They are not saved. And because of their deception, because of their lies, because of their desire to gain more for themselves, God judges them and says, okay, if you want that, you're less likely to get saved. And the reason why that is, is because they've hardened their hearts to the gospel. They're hard. And listen, when you're hard-hearted, you are less likely to hear from God. You're less likely to see God in your life. We see that exemplified in Pharaoh, in the Old Testament, when he hardened his heart. We see it in the disciples' lives, when they had hard hearts, they didn't see what Jesus was saying, they didn't understand it. And that's why it says in Hebrews chapter 3, twice, if you hear the Spirit of the Lord today, do not harden your hearts. Because if you harden your heart to God, you are less likely to hear from Him. Now this has many applications for us in here today. The first one is that if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, I implore you not to harden your heart to God. If you sense that drawing of the Spirit in your life, that there are people around you in your life saying God is real, sin is real, salvation is real in Jesus, then please, I implore you, don't harden your heart to that. Respond to it. The other application is that these false teachers, I don't believe they're unredeemable. I do think there's a possibility that they can get saved. 
And I do believe the same for false teachers in the church today. And the application for us is that we should spend more time, listen, praying for their salvation than maybe debating about what they're saying. I acknowledge that there's a place to expose false teachers in in today's church, but we need to pray for them more that they get saved because they're not saved. We need to pray for them. The other thing is that a worrying sign that I see in the church is less talk of repentance. Obviously, people love to hear about the love of God, the grace of Jesus. Amen to that. But we are going to, listen very carefully, we are going to make false converts if we do not talk to them about repentance. There's a very sobering truth about the New Testament that teaches that there will be people on Judgment Day who think they're Christians, but they're not. They'll say to Jesus, Lord, we did this for you, we did that for you. And Jesus will say to them, go away from me. I never knew you. Listen, there are probably, I would say, millions of people in churches who think they're saved and they're not, and they're false converts. And that is why, the reason that is, is because they have not repented of their sin. They want to believe in Jesus, that Jesus forgives them, but they don't want to live a new life, a life of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They want to know about the, you know, the love of God, but they don't want to live a new life. So I would say that for us, in our lives as believers, when we're trying to witness to people, we can't hold back from speaking about repentance. We can't hold back from living repentance as well, because a great witness to unbelievers is when a Christian says, you know what, I've got that wrong, I'm sorry. I repent of that before you and before God. That is a great witness to unbelievers, because they see that you're not a hypocrite. It's also very important for us as a church corporately that when people come in here, we're not scared about talking about repentance. And I would ask you that if John or myself start downplaying repentance in our preaching, you need to rebuke us. Because I don't want to be part of making false converts. There's no point in that. You're just deceiving those people. But then the last application of this is for those believers in here who may have a hard heart today. You can be born again and still have elements of your heart that are hard. Maybe there's a sin that you're not repenting of. Maybe there's an issue in your relationships that you're just hard about and you're just pushing God away. No, God, I don't want to hear about that. You're hardening your heart when you do that, and God wants to deal with that today. If, as I'm speaking to you, you feel (laughs) anger towards me or a certain resistance, Adam, I don't want to hear this, then you may have hardness in your heart, and God wants to deal with that today. Don't leave here without dealing with that. Now, we go on to the judgment of these false teachers in the future. And the judgment of false teachers in the future is going to start on the day of judgment, which is spoken of in verse 9. And listen, 
that judgment that will start on that day will go on forever, without end, for the rest of eternity. Let that sink into your heart. And this day of judgment is a day that will occur in the future where God will judge every man and woman that's ever lived in terms of their morality. We see a very good description of the day of judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. It should be up on the screen. I'll read those verses. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." In some senses, I don't really need to say any more. The words speak for themselves. But this is a description of the day of judgment, when God will have every man and woman before him and will judge them according to their morality, and that morality will be shown in their deeds, their works, what they've done in their life. And as Jesus said in John 5, there will be those on that day that will be resurrected onto condemnation. Those people are those who have not put their faith in Christ. They've not turned from their sin. They've not believed in Jesus. And they will be resurrected onto that condemnation because God will look at them and say, you're not morally right. Therefore, you have to be separated from me forever because I can have nothing to do with evil. But as Jesus says, on that day, there will be those that have been resurrected onto everlasting life. They are those people who've repented of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, and Jesus, God the Father, the Spirit, they'll say to that person, you're right because you're in Christ. Come and be with me for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And in this chapter, there are certain things said about what the experience on that day is going to be for false teachers. We see it says in verse 2, sorry, not verse 2, verse 1, and verse 12, it says that they will have a swift destruction and they will perish in their own corruption. And what this means is that on that day, what false teachers are, the fact that they're liars, they're false, they don't speak the truth, they deceive people, they lead people astray, that will come to a swift end, hallelujah. I don't want to be around people like that. But it also means that their, their eternal judgment in hell, in the lake of fire, will come upon them swiftly as well. Quickly. There will be no hanging about. It also says in verse 9, listen, that they are going to be punished on that day. And the word for punishment in verse 9 speaks of God inflicting pain inflicting loss 
and inflicting death upon these people. That is why it says in verse 13 that on that day they will receive the wages of unrighteousness, which according to Romans 6 is the wages of sin. And what's the wage of that? It's death. Death in the sense of being separated from God forever. And that is why it says very soberly in verse 17 that what's reserved for them is the blackness of darkness forever. In the lake of fire, there will obviously be the flame of torment, but there will be a darkness that no one has ever experienced before. That darkness will be because there is no no presence of God in that place that's good. There'll be no goodness of God, no grace, no love, no mercy. There'll be no blessing. And this is something that we cannot even fathom. Because listen, even though we live in a fallen world, this world still has the grace of God. The sun coming up in the morning is the grace of God. The rain is the grace of God. The air we breathe is the grace of God. The water we drink is the grace of God. Even when we're not saved. But in that place, there will be none of that. There will be no goodness, only darkness, because the light of God will not be there. Jesus will not be there. Heavy stuff. You know, on that day, brothers and sisters, God is going to be angry. He's going to be angry because God hates sin. And God hates sin, listen, because he just hates its existence. He hates the effect of sin upon people. He hates the fact that people don't respond to the provision of dealing with your sin in Christ. And so on that day, on that day of judgment, God will have a holy, righteous anger and wrath. And this is like no wrath or anger that we can think of. It is a perfect anger, it is just, it is holy, it's like nothing we can think of. And it's right, it's good. It's going to be a great thing that God is going to be like that. Now, in saying that, I know many of you will be finding that difficult to hear. But the truth is, is that we are without excuse the testimony of the gospel that has been there for 2,000 years, and even before that, I would say, in the Old Testament, is enough to show men and women that they need to turn to God and be saved. I mean, there are certain things written in the New Testament that confirm this. John the Baptist said in John 3:36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the listen... The wrath of God abides on him. Meaning that God is going to pour out his wrath on that person in the day of judgment. Then in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, it says, Speaking of those who are sinners, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are, listen, treasuring up for yourself wrath 
in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Amen. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. If we don't respond to the truth, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are storing up for ourselves wrath that is going to be poured out upon you on that day, the day of judgment. I don't know when that's going to be. It could be tomorrow. But it's coming. This is going to happen. This is not me making this up. This is from the scriptures that have been consistently there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. This is God telling you. This is God warning you. If you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, this day is coming. Whether you want to accept it or not, if there's any false teachers listening to this message, this day is coming. It's going to happen. Repent. Turn to Jesus while there's time. Please. And be with him forever in the goodness of God, the blessing of God. Now, often when you talk to people about this, and many of you may be feeling this right now, there's often one of two things that are said. The first thing is, well, God's harsh for doing that. Why should I be judged? I've not murdered anyone. I've not done anything terribly wrong. Isn't it harsh for God to judge me? But listen, you can't have that excuse because it says in verse 1, it's the false teachers themselves that bring on this swift destruction. It's their own corruption that brings on this perishing work that God's going to bring. Listen, our sin is our responsibility. It's not God's responsibility. It's not anyone else's. It's ours. All people have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person is in the same boat. I am no better than anyone else. I am a wretched sinner. But thank God that I'm saved by his grace. Thank God that Jesus died for my sin on the cross so that I don't have to be judged one day. I can't think of any better news in the world. It is great news. Amazing news. You can't use the excuse of saying, it's not my fault. You won't be able to, on that day, on the day of judgment, say to God, well, God, I never knew. It's your responsibility. Your sin is your responsibility. But God has provided for that sin on the cross. And, and, and in many ways, this way of thinking is, to be honest, it's, it's quite stupid. I hope I don't offend anyone in saying that, but it is stupid. Because it's like saying... If you've got a courtroom scene where there's a judge and there's someone who is uh, a convicted rapist. And it's like you saying, well, it's the judge's fault. It's not the rapist's fault. Even though they've done it, even though they're guilty, even though in a sense they know they're guilty, this way of thinking, it's just, it's a fallen way of thinking. 
But thank God that we have the Scriptures, that He tells us the truth in them. And then, listen, the other way or the other response that people have when you speak about this anger, this wrath, this judgment, is that people are quite blasé about it. They kind of say, well, yeah, that's going to be sometime in the future. I don't really need to worry about that now. I don't see judgment in my life. I don't really need to think about the judgment of God. And this is especially true, listen, with false teachers. Because if you say to a false teacher, hey, don't you think what you're doing is wrong? They'll say, well, hey, I've got a jet. I've got 10 cars. I've got millions of pounds. I've got a big church. I've got a successful ministry. God's not judging me. He's blessing me. That is being blasé about the judgment of God. And I believe that that specific response was around when Peter was writing this. Because notice what he says in verse 3. He says, For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Which means that the judgment that's going to come on these people doesn't sleep. It's going to come at the exact right time. And because of that, you should not be blasé about the judgment of God. And Peter uses three examples from the Old Testament to make that point about not being blasé about judgment. He speaks in verse 4 about these angels who sinned, whom he cast down to hell and delivered into chains of darkness. I believe that that's speaking of angels at the time of Noah, or fallen angels who took on the form of man, which we know angels can do, and they committed sexual immorality with women. He then speaks of, in verse 5, about the judgment upon the world in the the flood of Noah. And then in verse 6, he speaks about the judgment of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were associated with homosexuality. He speaks about Judgment in these three scenarios. And what links these three things together, listen, is that these angels that were sort of disregarding the authority of God and committing sexual immorality, the people who lived in corruption and violence before Noah's flood, the people who were committing homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah, they thought they would get away with it. They thought that judgment was not coming. And then judgment came, boom, swift, quick, perfect, completely doing what God's will was at that time. And what Peter's saying is saying, look, think about these examples in the Old Testament of the judgment of God. Even though you don't see the judgment right now, it doesn't mean it's not coming. And it doesn't mean when it comes that it's not going to be swift and clinical, to use a doctor's term. This is going to happen. We should not have these responses to the judgment of God. Now, I'm fully aware that what I'm saying today <laughs> is, 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 in one way, very depressing. I suspect that many of you will go home and not really meditate on this sermon that much. But I do think that it's written in this way by the Spirit, to bring across this heaviness and this depression for a reason. Because God wants to make it clear, look, being involved in false teaching, false, you could say, false apostate churches, 
is a depressing thing. It's horrible. It's not good. God wants to really bring that about. But there is an encouragement in the end of this sermon for us. And the encouragement is that, listen, even though I believe false teachers are getting more and more in the church, that the world is getting worse and worse and worse, I think it's obvious on the news that that's, that's happening, God wants to use us as born-again believers as an alternative to that darkness. He wants to use us to be the light of Jesus Christ in this dark world. He did that in the Old Testament. Look, he used two people. He used Noah in verse 5. And bless him, he used Lot, who was a man who made many mistakes. But it says of Noah that Noah was a preacher of righteousness and Lot had a righteous soul. And what is the definition of being righteous before God? Having faith. Noah, when it says he was a preacher of righteousness, he was obviously a preacher of repentance, but he was a preacher of faith as well, man. He was saying to the people at that time, look, God is real. He's going to judge the world. Believe him. Come onto the ark. But unfortunately, only seven other people responded. And even Lot, with his righteous soul, that means he had a faithful soul. He walked in faithfulness when he was alive in gross immorality around him. And it says he was tormented by that. And God wants to do the same with us. He wants us, listen, to be those who live out faithfulness in our souls on a daily basis by abiding in Christ. He wants us to speak this righteousness as well with our mouths, to speak the faithfulness of God to us in Jesus Christ and how he wants us to respond in repentance and faith. And I believe that if we are obedient to that, whatever result we will see, whether we see hundreds, thousands, millions of people getting saved, or maybe only two, we will be rewarded for that when we stand before Jesus. Amen?